I think your listeners will probably remember that report on his health from his personal physician that said he is in excellent health, and it literally says he would be something like the healthiest man ever elected president. President Trump has a long history of boasting about his health. Uh, He was elected at an older age than they were, and he sort of responded actually by trying to one-up them, by going out of his way to show that he somehow was that literally the healthiest president of all time. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Last Friday morning, many of us woke up to the news that he'd contracted COVID-19. Later that day, it became clear that this was no asymptomatic case. The president ended up at Walter Reed Medical Center. And we know now he underwent some pretty serious treatment. Last night, though, he was back at the White House. He took off his mask and posed for photos on the balcony. It was a whirlwind, and in many ways, it was uniquely Trumpian. But in others, it wasn't really unique at all. As long as we've had this republic, presidents have gotten ill, and they've dealt with it in ways as varied as they've dealt with governing. So joining me today with some perspective on presidential illness throughout history is Peter Castor. He's the History Department Chairman at Washington University and a professor of both history and and American Culture Studies. So, Peter Castor, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So, President Trump's triumphant return to the White House last night certainly garnered a lot of attention. You're a historian. What went through your mind when you saw that photo op? I admit it was pretty jarring. I watched it both as a historian and as someone living now. The first thing that I think a lot of people observed was the president taking off his mask, Mm -hmm. which... I understand the dramatic value of that, but it struck me that that's not normally what you would permit someone to do. But the larger issue as I watch this that it reminded me of is that throughout the history of the office of the presidency, presidents have consistently sought to convince people that they're healthy. They go out of the way to convince Americans that they're healthy. And very often they go out of their way to hide the extent of their illness. And that has been the case from George Washington through um, Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So this, what kind of felt a bit like posturing of health last night, this is not an exception to the history of this country. This seems like it it fits in um, with what presidents have always done. Oh, absolutely. So when, when Alexander Hamilton wrote in The Federalist about the presidency, he said the presidency would give the government energy And presidents have often interpreted that to mean that they need to show that they personally have energy. And I actually think this has really ramped up in the last 30 years. Hmm. Uh, The three presidents who preceded uh, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, really, really went out of their way to show that they were healthy. Uh, Bill Clinton went jogging. Uh, George W. Bush went mountain biking. Barack Obama played basketball. They were photographed doing this, videotaped doing it. And then Donald Trump gets elected. He's older than they were. Uh, He was elected at an older age than they were. And he sort of responded actually by trying to one-up them, by going out of his way to show that he somehow was that literally the healthiest president of all time. We haven't seen him do mountain biking photo ops, for example. It's hard to even imagine him being on on a mountain bike. So how has he sought to convey that? Um, Obviously, he's using different means than they did. Right. So he's partly had his doctors do that for him. Mm -hmm. There, I, I 
think your listeners will probably remember that report on his health from his personal physician that said he is in excellent health, and it literally says he would be something like the healthiest man ever elected president. After he had been in office, the White House physician again reported that he was exceptionally healthy, and there are certain ways in which he does seem to be. You know, he's uh, for a man of his age, there are uh, he's in good health, but he also has some health problems. Mm -hmm. And people have called attention to the fact that they don't believe everything that's coming from the White House physician. The simply the claims about his height to weight ratio is something that people have questioned. He's allowed photos to be released of him playing tennis and playing golf, the classic presidential sports. But that's the way he's done it. And he's also just asserted it. He has said he's healthier. When he ran for office, he said, Hillary Clinton doesn't have the stamina to be president, and he does. And in this election, President Trump has really used Joe Biden as his foil. Mm -hmm. He said that he's implied that Joe Biden is somehow too old and not doesn't have full capacity to be president. He is not sufficiently strong, robust, and healthy to be president, whereas he, Donald Trump, is. So that's the way he's done it. Do you think it's any of our business how healthy the president is? I get that that Trump has has certainly made this an issue by having his doctors boast that he's the healthiest president ever. Um, but do we need to know the president's weight? Well, I think Americans have always believed they're entitled to know this. And again, it's as old as the office. Soon after he was elected, George Washington contracted. Uh, he became sick. He had uh, contracted an infection of some kind. And Americans were really, really worried. Hmm. They said, if this man dies, the experiment in Republican government is doomed. And they felt entitled to know about his health condition. The other thing about presidents is, in general, many of the things that Americans consider to be private business, their health, their intimate relationships and their personal finances are all items, are all areas that we think privacy does not apply when it comes to the president. The only area of private life in general that Americans seem to believe is appropriately private for presidents is their relationships with their young children. In this case, there's been very little intrusive coverage of Barron Trump, but there's been a lot of coverage of Trump's adult children. So Americans clearly believe that they are entitled to know these details about a president's life. And health has only become more so, especially over the last, let's say, 50 to 60 years. This is partly a result of the Cold War and contemporary government where Americans assumed they needed to have a president who was there, who could govern at every instant who could respond to every crisis, that somehow the U.S. couldn't respond to crisis if the president is not healthy. Hmm. And the other thing that changed is the way that people cover the presidency. Journalists, by and large, did not intrude on private matters of health with most presidents. That was certainly the case with presidents in the first half of the 20th century who at times had very significant health problems. Mm -hmm. But more recently, they have come to conclude that they really should be covering this closely because a president's physical health, cognitive health, 
all of that can affect a president's performance in office. And I think that's the baseline, that Americans are entitled to know about the health of a president because it affects their capacity to do their jobs. We all hear about JFK and how he was suffering from some pretty serious illnesses and the the press was complicit in that. When did it change that the press began to say, you know what, we are going to push for more answers on this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, it's, it's hard to pinpoint it exactly, but I would say it probably happened when the general relationship between journalists and the executive branch began to change in the 1960s and early 1970s, Hmm. when journalists became more assertive in dealing with the presidency, when they investigated more closely, when they really developed those skills. And a lot of historians, people who study journalism, say that the combination of the Vietnam War and Watergate, both of which demonstrated that presidents would lie and would lie pretty aggressively, uh, made journalists believe that they had both a right and a responsibility to investigate presidents more aggressively and that they didn't have to defer to presidents. So JFK was probably the last president who, for want of a better term, got away with it. Mm -hmm. But I do want to emphasize the White House began to change a little. So the first time Americans got a lot of details about a serious illness for a president was when Dwight Eisenhower suffered a heart attack. Hmm. And this was actually a really important moment in public education about health, which was that Americans began to learn what a heart attack is and how a heart attack is treated. And similarly, when Ronald Reagan underwent a procedure to remove uh, polyps from his colon, that was handled publicly. I I think there was video of the procedure on TV, which may have been a bit much, but these were still moments where the White House was in some ways becoming more comfortable with disclosing details about presidential, not just, I wouldn't say presidential health, but rather presidential illness. The White House is always willing to trumpet presidential health. They're happy to show that. It, when they hide, side. it's about presidential illness. Yeah, that they've become more comfortable, as you say, with Eisenhower talking about this heart attack, with Reagan letting us see these polyps, mm-hmm. apparently. Um, so they're letting us in on these procedures. Does that seem like maybe a welcome trend? I, I agree in, in two ways. They enable Americans to know more about their presidents. But each one of these, when handled well, becomes a moment in public health information. It provides an opportunity for this office holder who everybody knows about to instruct the public about important areas of health. Hmm. Do you have a question about how presidents have handled health problems throughout American history or maybe an observation about this public health moment that President Trump has brought us or not brought us in the last few days? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air. You can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We've heard from some of our listeners on social media who knew we were talking about this today. Um, And Carrie says on Twitter that while this does feel 
fit into, yes, there's been presidential illness throughout history. She says the difference is that the other illnesses weren't contagious. I'll give you that they were deceptive and even dangerous to the country at some points, not letting people in on, on the true extent of their health problems. But they weren't infecting people around them, many of whom are not in a position to quit their jobs. Uh, Peter, what do you make of the spread throughout the White House and the president's inner circle? Have you ever seen anything like that in American history, what we've seen in the last few days with the coronavirus just sort of blazing through the White House? Not as dramatic and not as disturbing, no. Uh, You run into examples where the president gets the flu and other people in the the household get the flu. But this is really different. and, And that point is a really, really good one. A lot of the discussion of presidential health and illness is about the president's ability to do his job. Uh, part of what has made people really upset about the way Donald Trump has handled his own contracting uh, COVID-19 is that his actions put others at risk. Whenever anybody has this disease, they can put others at risk. And it's it's really startling to watch this move through the White House. And everything I've read is indicating it's it's really having an impact on the ability of the White House staff to do their jobs, even mm-hmm. the people who aren't infected. I'm, I'm seeing uh, people from the Secret Service who who seem to be speaking on background to reporters and saying that they're terrified. They're, you know, they're sitting in a car with somebody that they now know has been infected with COVID-19. Do you see this becoming an issue that, that uh, Joe Biden is going to seize on? Um, that the, the president has opened himself up to this being used against him in a way that, that maybe if he reacted differently to this diagnosis, it might actually work to his benefit. I agree. And I think Joe Biden will continue to do what he's already doing, which is to say that Donald Trump has mismanaged the pandemic. And now he can go from the general to the particular. He can say he mishandled it for the country at large. He's mishandling it in the White House. But the the reason why this is happening to me is really interesting. Part of it is consistent with the kind of things Donald Trump does. But also, this is a president who from the start has said, I am healthy, I am strong. The two characteristics he seems to hate most are weakness. Um, and you know, strength is his favorite, weakness is worst. Um, inability is the other term he doesn't like. You know, He always says someone needs to be strong and capable as opposed to weak and incapable. And he is trying to use this moment to show that he is strong and to, and he seems to be interpreting, acknowledging this disease and taking the steps that doctors are recommending as somehow showing that he is weak. Hmm. That is a quality that he has, but I, I really want to emphasize presidents always try to do this and it, it makes, it leads them into situations where they mislead the public. We're talking about presidential illnesses with Peter Castor. He's a professor of history and American culture studies at Washington University. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
And now back to our conversation. We're talking today with Peter Castor. He's the History Department Chairman at Washington University. He's a professor of both history and American culture studies. And we're talking today about President Trump's illness and how that fits into presidential history. Our phone lines are open. If you have a question or comment for Peter, you can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can also send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. I do want to go to the phone lines. Uh, Harry is calling from University City with a great question. Harry, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hello. Um, I I want to ask your guest, um, to what extent has the, the effect of medication on the president when he has been ill, has that been studied in terms of the president's judgment? Hmm. That's a great, very timely question, Harry. Uh, Peter Castor, any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that is a really terrific question. Uh, yes and no. Uh, historians, medical historians have looked at presidential illness. I don't know of a systematic study that's looked at uh, the effect of medicine. One thing I will say, though, is that before the 20th century, one thing we know is that medication tended to have almost no beneficial impact for presidents and sometimes had negative impact on had a negative <laughs> impact on them uh, simply because it didn't work or it might have harmful side effects. Uh, we pre- earlier talked about John Kennedy and his is a really interesting case in point in that the combination of his Addison's disease, his hyperthyroidism, also operating at a time when doctors were prescribing a lot of medications have led historians to medical historians to ask whether the uh, the concoction he was taking, the mix of medications, actually were having an impact on what he was doing. Um, most often, though, the question is simply, are the medications helping or not, hmm. uh, rather than what the side effects might be on a president's ability to do his job. Is there a worry that if a, a medication was impairing the president, would there be people who'd be equipped to take over? Has that ever happened? Well, the close, the only time, the, the closest to that is when Reagan, uh, when Ronald Reagan had the polyps removed mm. and when George W. Bush underwent a colonoscopy uh, for similar reasons. And in both cases, they signed documents that temporarily handed power over to the vice president. And it wasn't just when they were literally unconscious because this procedure was being done, but it was also an acknowledgement of the fact that the sedatives they were taking affected their judgment while Hmm. they were under the influence of them. And that's the only time we've really had that in uh, writing. We had something close to that. When Ronald Reagan was shot and was undergoing surgery, of course, he was unable to execute... um, his office as president. Mm -hmm. And for uh, Americans who remember that, it actually caused a strange little constitutional crisis. Vice President George H.W. Bush was out of the loop at the moment. And the Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, said, well, I'm the next in line. I'm in charge here. I'm in control. He actually wasn't the next in line. It was the Speaker of the House and the President pro tem of the Senate and then the Secretary of State. But after Reagan was shot, there was he. It took him a, a long time to recover, and there were some around him who had real concerns that he either was unable to function as president then, or would not be able to recover fully his capacity to function as president. 
Hmm. So it's less about medication per se, but it is a bit more about a moment when Americans worried about a president's ability to do his job. The other example, though, was actually Franklin Roosevelt. Hmm. So what many people know is that Roosevelt had suffered from polio, but that in no way limited his ability to do his job. Some people at the time did, but that was part of the stigma that was attached to disability at that time. Mm -hmm. And that's often the way people understood it. But in the run-up to the 1944 election, Roosevelt's health really declined. Uh, he eventually died from a combination of hypertension and heart disease, but that first manifested itself in ways that doctors could see in, this, in 1944. And there were very limited ways to treat that then. You know, they did what they could. Mm -hmm. But what I would say is that the absence, the way to think about it is the absence of a more effective treatment prevented, first, first of all, may account for why Roosevelt had a stroke the following year, mm. but prevented Roosevelt from recovering more quickly. And in that moment, there were people around him who really worried about whether he would be able to run for re-election, let alone continue to govern. His health did improve uh, to some degree, and he was able to see through his term. But during that time in 1944, it was it was really dicey. Hmm. That's interesting. That's not what we always think about when we think about Roosevelt and health. And we actually had an interesting question from a listener that came in by email. Uh, Lindsay, who lives in St. Louis's Benton Park neighborhood, writes, I wanted to ask whether your guest thinks that FDR could be elected today, given his struggles with polio and the use of a wheelchair. I've heard that he never allowed a public picture of himself in that assistive device. Um, what do you think about that, Peter Castor? Could he be open about something like this today? So first of all, um, Caller is absolutely right that Roosevelt did everything he could to hide the degree to which polio limited his mobility. And there are a lot of photographs of him with his son. And it looks like he's holding his son's arm in a warm embrace. Well, what he's actually doing is using his son to help stand upright. Roosevelt would wear these locked leg braces, but he needed his son to help him so that he wouldn't fall over. <laughs> By 1945, Roosevelt was not strong enough to, to do that anymore. So there actually were photographs of him in his wheelchair. So the way I would think about it is that at the time he was elected, and at a time when disability carried so much social stigma, it was remarkable that he was elected. I would hope that now, if there was a candidate who had similar disability, that candidate wouldn't have to hide that disability. That candidate would be electable. Um, it's interesting, it's though. I mean, from Illinois, mm -hmm. uh, a senator who is uh, a partial amputee and who has, you know, was elected to the Senate and has done nothing to hide the consequences of her war injuries in the Iraq War. And the the crucial thing in both cases is that those. That illness in Roosevelt's case, that injury more recently, that um, they in no way limited their ability to do their job. The real question about presidential health and illness is when there is an illness that has the risk of limiting a president's ability to do the job effectively. 
And it seems like, yeah, a lot of the medical conditions people might suffer from wouldn't limit their ability to do their job. But hearing you talk about just this emphasis on vigor and good health and the way that, you know, these these recent presidents have been so obsessed with showing that or proving that to the American people, it, it makes me wonder if, if there's internal polling where they're aware this is something we all need in, in, in this way that we can't even put our finger on. Do you think this idea that, that Hamilton had is actually stronger now more than ever, that we're insisting that we get a president who's physically dominant for some reason that just makes no sense in the 21st century. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And also at a time when, you know, as you were saying earlier, when presidents can't, when the country is more intrusive into their health, mm-hmm. this is how they've responded. They've ramped up the proclamations of health. The best comparison, I think, is actually Woodrow Wilson. A lot of people have been learning about him over the last week. Wilson suffered a stroke in um, his, I think, 1918, and for about 15 months, the people around him kept this hidden. And this stroke really, um, it had a huge impact on him. It, it, it really limited him physically. It affected him cognitively. And this was at a time when that could be kept hidden. There's no way you could keep this hidden now. Yeah. And I do think it's part of the reason why presidents now try so hard to show that they're healthy, but also... We've just had three presidents, all elected in middle age, all of whom were kind of inclined towards um, exercise mm-hmm. in the case of Clinton, Clinton less so, but in the case of Bush and Obama. And I think the three of them kind of set this uh, new standard that's a pretty tough standard to meet. You know, George H.W. Bush tried to show it by he, he played golf and he parachuted occasionally. And of course, Ronald Reagan on horseback was supposed to be a demonstration that he was still, and he loved riding horses, but it was also supposed to demonstrate that he was fit, that he was energetic, that he was up to the job. It's interesting. In our modern time, we seem so much more aware of the importance of mental health. And we had a caller, Ralph. He he dropped off. I think he had to go. But he was talking about um, how much he admired Lincoln and how Lincoln dealt with depression and, and some of the, the mental health issues that plagued him, I think, after his son and, and with the Civil War going on. Um, but then I also think about Missouri's own Thomas Eagleton. Do you think that America would be ready for a president who could admit that they've dealt with mental health issues, that they've done psychotherapy or that they've, they've sought um, uh, antidepressant drugs, or are we not there yet either? Gosh, I would hope that we would be. I mean, so much and again, of the population. I do tend to think of these yeah. moments of health and illness as opportunities for education. So if you had a president uh, who struggled with mental illness, to have that person say, you know, this is a struggle of mine, I deal with it, I can still serve as president, and anybody can, you know, do their job and have their life as they grapple with this boy, that would be a terrific moment. Mm-hmm. But I do think it would be it would be really difficult mm-hmm. for many Americans because there is the physical health dimension and then there is the mental and cognitive health dimension of presidents. Physical health, that's been kind of cleared out. Um, in other areas, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's harder to tell. I don't know if Americans, they certainly weren't ready in 1972, mm-hmm. in the case of Tom Eagleton, who was only being considered for the vice presidency. I don't know if Americans would be ready for that now. Um, 
I, ju- I just don't know. Hmm. Well, Peter Castor, last question for you today. I've learned so much from from hearing you describe these things, but I want to loop back to President Trump here. We've talked about some public health moments um, where the American people were able to learn from illness. Do you think there's anything the American people can take away from what President Trump has has dealt with in the last week or so? I guess it's been less than a week. It feels like more than a week. Um, But even if he's not having this public health moment, is there a public health moment that comes out of it for the rest of us? Yeah. COVID's really dangerous and it spreads really quickly. I mean, that's, I'm not a physician and even I can draw that lesson from it, that it's clear that the people around the president were deeply worried by this. Mm -hmm. He apparently didn't want to go to the hospital, but they made him go because they were really worried. And even though we have a White House where they have ample access, access to testing, uh, all of them are well insured. You know, they've they've got all the medical support. They've got the best possible medical support surrounding them, mm-hmm. and yet this disease has moved really, really quickly. Uh, that's one thing we learn by seeing this White House, and I think that's the other reminder that we're getting that even people who have the best possible access to medical care are still in danger from this disease. Well, there's a sobering thought, um, but I guess a perfect place to to finish our conversation today. So Peter Castor of Washington University, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.